0: Well, good morning and welcome. My name is CJ, one of the pastors here at Citizens. Over the next two weeks, Dave and I will both preach sermons reminding us all of the vision that God has given us for Citizens Church. We are a family of servant missionaries following Jesus with our whole selves because of who he is and what he has done. We have six distinctives. Uh, We are disciples who make disciples. Um, so we, di- we become disciples as we are discipling each other. We are committed to healing and wholeness. Jesus is our Lord and Savior, but he is also our healer. We as a church practice gospel fluency, uh, which means applying the gospel to the everyday stuff of our lives, rooting out idolatry, We believe that God has called us to live missionally, that our primary vocation as believers in Jesus is to tell others about Christ and his kingdom. The good news that even though we are sinners, Christ has died for us. He has risen from the dead. We are committed as a church to feasting with the poor, that Jesus didn't call us to feed the poor, but to feast with them, that justice and mercy are the true worship of God's church. And finally, we are a story-formed people. We have a story and we are in a story. God is in the process of redeeming and reconciling all of creation to himself, And so our vision and our distinctives are near and dear to us at Citizens. They're not going anywhere. Uh, Today, I wanna speak uh, specifically about our church name, Citizens, and why it is so important to us. I read a story this week about a second-generation Japanese-American soldier who fought in World War II named Kazuo Yamane. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, 117,000 Japanese Americans were placed in internment camps in the U.S. Meanwhile, hundreds of Japanese men like Yamane, who lived in Hawaii, volunteered to join the U.S. armed forces. They were known as the Nisei soldiers of Hawaii. Yamane's loyalty to the United States is absolutely astounding when you learn more about his story. Though he fought to defend the freedom of U.S. citizens, his own parents weren't even granted citizenship until 1952 because of decades-old anti-immigration policy. Additionally, Yamane and others like him were mistreated by their own comrades, treated with skepticism because of their Japanese heritage. In spite of all of this, Kazuo Yamane remained loyal to the country he loved, the country that held his highest allegiance. He and later his family took the oath of American citizenship, which included these words, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince Potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. It had to be incredibly hard for Kazuo to hold tension between his ethnic and cultural heritage and his newfound identity as a citizen of the United States. The Apostle Paul tells us that as followers of Jesus, we are in a similar kind of position. We have two cultural identities, but one demands our highest allegiance. He says in Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, the other apostle Peter, echoes this sentiment in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So if you follow Jesus, then you are a stranger, an alien, an exile in the world and in this city. Your citizenship, your primary citizenship is in heaven. That is where your allegiance lies. And listen, you may be hated for it. You may suffer for it. It may cost you everything. It may come at the price of your success Of your material gain and financial security. Here's what I believe Jesus wants to remind us from our text in John chapter 17 this morning that without a resilient allegiance to Christ's kingdom, we will lose our witness and abandon our sanctification. These are the stakes of living in a state of dual citizenship. They're incredibly high. Let me pray uh, and ask God to be with us this morning as we dive into his word. Lord God, we worship and praise you this morning. We count it a privilege and a joy to gather as your church, as your family. God, we need you. We're living in difficult times. We need you desperately. We need your truth. We need assurance from you constantly that we are right to follow you, even as it becomes more and more difficult for us to do so. I ask Jesus that you would captivate us, that you would let the gospel be so beautiful to us that no other lover can lure us. Make us a faithful bride. We thank you, Jesus, that you are faithful to us, even in our unfaithfulness, Thank you that you have fulfilled both sides of the covenant so that we may be cloaked in the righteousness of God. Jesus, teach us from your word. Your word is truth. We ask that you sanctify us in your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, this contrast between two cultural identities is present throughout the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the first separation between people groups when Cain and Abel choose to work and live in different ways. On the one hand, you have the nomadic pastoral life of Abel, and on the other, the more agricultural or urban life of Cain. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to leave the urban center of Mesopotamia, a city built by the descendants of Noah, and instead live a life of nomadism where he would have to depend solely on God's provision. God, or Abraham refers to himself in Genesis chapter 23, 4 as a stranger and an alien. Though God made Abraham a promise of a new home, he lived in tents for the entirety of his life. Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, settle in Egypt until God releases them from slavery back into the wilderness to again live a nomadic life. So we see an early theme that's emerging in the story of God, one that favors a life of sojourning for the people of God. When Israel enters the promised land, they are initially relieved by the more settled agricultural and urban cities of Canaan, but are subsequently enticed by the many sins present there. God reminds them in Leviticus chapter 25, 23, in speaking about the promised land, he says, the land shall not be sold in pe- perpetuity for the land is mine. And then look what he says, or you are strangers and sojourners with me. God says, even as you live in Canaan, this promised land I've given you, you remain like me, a sojourner. Later in the scriptures, we see a new comparison emerge between Jerusalem and Babylon. Jerusalem represents the people of God enjoying the salvation of God and Babylon, the people of the world pursuing the salvation of their own humanity. Babylonian citizenship can best be summed up in the words of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four, verse 30. He says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Okay, and then most of the Old Testament Is about the people of God giving in to the temptation to follow the way of Babylon rather than the way of Jerusalem. This image between Jerusalem and Babylon is so powerful that it carries over into the New Testament all the way to Revelation when Jerusalem comes to represent the new heavens and the new earth the heavenly city of God, which stands in opposition to the earthly realm of Babylon, a people who reject God and give their allegiance to Satan and the powers of darkness. Okay. Let's look back at the story we just spent five weeks in together. Okay. Here are the main symbols that outline God's grand story, the true story of the whole world. God is writing a six-act play in human history, beginning with creation. God creates all things beautiful and perfect. He sets mankind up for a life of flourishing and shalom so that God, humans, and all of creation are intended to live in complete harmony with one another. The fall is the result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. They disobey him, seeking experiential knowledge of good and evil. The fall fractures the cosmos. Humans descend into chaos, estranged from one another, God and the creation. So then God chooses a people of promise, the nation of Israel. They will be his redeemed people. He rescues them from slavery, promises to remain faithful to and bless them. They are then commanded to bless all the nations to be a kingdom of priests We saw throughout the story of God that they fail over and over to obey him. And so then they're disciplined by way of exile. Other nations like Babylon come and overtake them. This is not the end of the story. Jesus, the promised Messiah, comes on a mission of redemption to deliver his people. He does this through his sinless life, death, and resurrection. He forms a new Israel the church, members of his new kingdom. So you and I, living in this story, are now citizens of this new kingdom, living in the tension of dual citizenship until Jesus comes again to reconcile all things and bring restoration to all of creation, okay? Memorize this story, tattoo it on your body, put it up in your house someplace, and remember, this is the true story of the world. And in this six-act drama, there are parallels, countless parallels, between the nation of Israel and the church. They are both a people marked out by God to live as citizens of his kingdom with their highest allegiance given to Christ. Now, both of them, we see, are living in the midst of opposing kingdoms rivaling narratives about what the true story of the world is. And actually, both of these opposing kingdoms are referred to in the scriptures as Babylon, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I know that's a lot, and I know, and hopefully, if you've been around citizens, you've heard this many, many times. Um, But it's really important that we understand um, what Jesus says to us in John chapter 17, the prayer that he prays for us, we need to understand that within the greater context of biblical history. We didn't just choose the name Citizens because we thought it sounded cool or because the website was available, okay? There is an entire biblical framework informing our identity as a church, our vision as a church. This story-formed framework explains the reality that we live in as God's people, When Jesus prays for us here in John chapter 17, verses 11 through 20, he is addressing this tension of dual citizenship, okay? So let's turn there, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 17. Jesus is days, if not hours, away from his death, okay? He's very close to the time where he will suffer and die on the cross for us. This section of John is Jesus' high priestly prayer over his disciples, over us. And his words tell us how high the stakes are on this. Let's look at John chapter 17, starting in verse 11. He prays to the Father. He says, and I am no longer in the world. He knows this time's coming soon. But they, that his disciples and us, are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas there, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Who will believe in me through their word. When Jesus prays for us, he doesn't ask God to remove us from the world, from our own version of cultural Babylon. He prays that while we are in the world, that we would not be of the world. That word of or the word ek uh, means from. It's about origin. It is about primary citizenship, highest allegiance. Jesus is saying that just as he is not from the world, that he doesn't belong to the world, that his highest allegiance isn't to the world, neither are you or I from the world. We are in the world living as resident aliens. Listen to what one second century student of the apostles says about this. He says Christians are not marked out from the rest of mankind by their country or their speech or their customs. They dwell in cities, both Greek and barbarian, each as his lot is cast, following the customs of the region in clothing and in food and in the outward things of life generally. Yet they manifest the wonderful and openly paradoxical character of their own state. He's referring to our heavenly citizenship that we, we would manifest an openly paradoxical character in line with kingdom values. He says, they inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents thereof, they take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disabilities as aliens. Man, that is a a painful line that we are to bear the weight of responsibility of where we live while simultaneously experiencing the natural cost of being foreigners. This is exactly what Kazuo Yamane and his family experience in the United States. He continues, "'Every foreign land is their native land, "'and every native land a foreign land. "'They pass their days upon earth, "'but their citizenship is in heaven.'" This is the reality of being a Christian. If you follow Jesus, plan on feeling like a stranger everywhere. And listen, as you mature into godliness, this will only increase. It will not decrease. Jesus is preparing you for your true home. I want to go back to our symbols from the story and zoom in a little bit, okay? We, the people of God, the new Israel, are living in the kingdom era of God's story, and we, like Israel, are living on foreign soil, facing the reality of dual citizenship. On the one hand, we are marked by the values of Christ's kingdom and on the other hand called to be good citizens of San Francisco. Now in a very real sense these two empires are in complete opposition to one another. The good news is That by God's grace, because of what Jesus has done on the cross and the way that Jesus' death and resurrection still blesses the entire world, there then becomes this overlap between, based on common grace, this overlap between what San Francisco values and what it loves and the ethics of Christ's kingdom. Okay, so a few of these things come to mind. Like what are these places of overlap? Care for the environment, right? A love for God's creation, a commitment to justice and equity for all people, a love for beauty and the arts, a desire to subdue and cultivate the earth so that we're at the front lines of technology and scientific advancement, which fulfills the cultural mandate, right? And these are just to name a few. And so, We have this beautiful opportunity as citizens to live in the overlap as much as we possibly can, and and by doing so, make the gospel winsome to and accessible to all our friends who don't yet follow Jesus. But knowing there will come a point while I live in San Francisco where where I will be forced to declare my highest allegiance. I can't just live in the overlap all the time. There's a moment where I say, I'm sorry, but I follow this man named Jesus and these kingdom values, and therefore, I part ways with you. I lovingly disagree with you and say, Jesus has my entire allegiance. Now, in this experience of living out dual citizenship, we face two great temptations. The first is to be in the world, but also of the world. Let's call this assimilation. This is the Christian who decides it is too hard to be in the world and maintain allegiance to Christ. They might say then, I'll just, I'm a Christian, but I will modify the creeds and orthodox truths of my heavenly kingdom citizenship um, to accommodate my present cultural reality. This is happening all the time. I read this quote from Mark Sayers in my sermon on exile in our politics series this past summer, and I find it worth repeating uh, this morning. Listen to what he says, pastor and theologian Mark Sayers. He says, the temptation of this discomfort between Orthodox Christian faith and the civil religion of the culture is to do what it takes for the pressure to go away. Okay, this discomfort we experience, we're experiencing enormous amount of discomfort, increasing discomfort of being Christians. And the, and the tendency is to alle- alleviate that pressure. He says, all the believer must do is ease up on the beliefs that grade against contemporary sensibilities tweak your view on sexuality to be more embracing of today's mood or move from a particularist view of Jesus to a universalist one and you are warmly embraced into the fold. Thus, for many Christians raised with the ethic of relevance, which is I was raised in this, of proving to the world that Christians can both be believers and carry the contemporary contemporary currency of cool, the new pressure presented by an intolerant tolerance proves too much. Some compartmentalize their beliefs into an orthodox secularist mashup and others simply disappear into the cold embrace of secularity. Has this happened to you? Have you been colonized by the culture? Assimilation is growing increasingly common in our post-Christian culture and even more so I think here in San Francisco. It's one of the greatest threats to the to the church. I've seen it happen for several of my friends and many past members of our church. When we succumb to the pressures of Babylon, the church loses its witness gets overtaken by the culture and slowly fades into the background until it no longer exists. It has lost its saltiness, its light covered by the blanket of syncretism. Friends, let it not be so of us. Let us remain a resilient people. Let us be a historic, orthodox, rooted expression of God's kingdom. That remains the commitment of your leaders, of your elders and your deacons. This is who we are as a church. We will remain steadfast. The days of maintaining allegiance to Christ while also enjoying favor from the world are behind us. I know it's so hard. I know it's painful. I know you are tired and weary, as am I. It is a heavy weight to carry. It weighs as much as the cross Jesus promised we would carry if we chose to follow him. But he is preparing our souls for an eternity of flourishing, the most amount of joy for the most amount of time. There is a second temptation, and it is that it is to not be of the world, but therefore not be in the world. To abandon San Francisco, either by leaving it altogether or by staying, but creating our own Christian utopia within the city. This we might call withdrawal. In this scenario, like the first, we lose our Christian witness, choosing to live in the overlap of our dual citizenship only as much as we are forced to. Meanwhile, we speak our own language, have our own customs, wear our own clothing, and simply put our heads in the sand until the Lord comes. Listen to what Kent Hughes says about this uh, as he reflects on John chapter 17, as he reflects on Jesus' prayer. He says, the Christian attitude toward the world should not be one of withdrawal. Christ does not ask that we be taken away. Withdrawal has always been a temptation for the religious, and in Jesus' time, the Pharisees succumbed to that temptation. It is possible to go womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers. It is possible to abandon our culture to the devil. It is interesting to note that though Moses, Elijah, and Jonah all asked to be taken out of the world, not one of their requests was granted. We need to ask ourselves honestly if we have functionally removed ourselves from the world. Christ prays that we will not. Okay, so as we are, are living in our dual, citizen, dual citizenship, Jesus praying that we would be in but not out of the world, those are our two great temptations to either assimilate or withdraw. We need to resist both of those. Now let's assume for a moment uh, that we would all say yes and amen to this vision I'm outlining for our church. How do we do it? Um, How do we actually live with dual citizenship? Jesus tells us in verse 17. He says, sanctify them. He prays that God would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Okay, Jesus prays for something called our sanctification. Sanctification means dedication and consecration, to be set apart, which is the meaning of the word holy. Okay, sanctification is predicated on the reality of God's holiness, that God himself is holy, that he's set apart in nature, and that his intention is to make his people holy in his likeness. I love this quote from John Piper. He said, holiness is the native air a Christian wants to breathe. Is that true of you? Do you long each day when you wake up, do you long to take a breath of holy air? Do you long for that? Like, God, I want to breathe in your pure air of holiness that comes from your truth, right? Where do we find the the fresh air of holiness? Jesus tells us that we find that through the truth found only in God's word. So we must be dedicated wholly to that which is true, we must see the world clearly for what it is. parse out what is true and what is untrue. And we cannot do that without a fierce commitment to reading and understanding the scriptures. We have to recognize that the world is working very hard to convince us of what it believes to be the one true story of the world. Okay? Those around us, the systems around us, they do not accept our sixth act drama of creation, fall, promise, redemption, kingdom, and restoration. They don't. They deny that completely. They are writing their own narratives. They have their own symbols. They have their own story about the way the world is. And unless we read the scriptures, we ourselves won't be able to see throughout our day where those competing narratives are coming in and harming us or, or pulling us away. I kept seeing this picture as I was thinking about our name and our logo. Um, I kept seeing this picture of what I call the tips of the cultural spear. Um, These are the sharpest places that the culture seeks to sort of penetrate our kingdom allegiance okay these formative systems of belief are the cultural waters we swim in and where the current is stronger than you and I could possibly imagine they're carrying us downstream in ways that we often are completely oblivious to and don't see okay and so i want to talk about these are just a few that came to my mind this week of sort of tips of the spear. Like as we exist, and we try to live out this dual citizenship, where are the places we're most in danger of assimilating into the culture? And so as I go through some of these, I just want you to ask the spirit of God to reveal to you in your life where some of these have overtaken you and your life. Okay, let's, let's look at the tips of the spear in the city. I would say one of these is materialism or consumerism. Okay. This idea that I will be happy and secure if I can acquire material goods. Okay? It's an entirely self-interested way of life. Consumption is the opposite of blessing. Okay. And so you need to, we need to ask ourselves, like, do I approach everything, including my church experience with the question, how will this meet my needs? Is this good enough for me? Do I like this? It, it, does this make me feel good? Does this make me happy? Does it serve all the things that I, does it, does it hit all of the benchmarks of things that I want and need? Okay. I would say that consumerism is one of the sharpest points of the sphere of our culture. Uh, an author and writer, a woman who writes for the Gospel Coalition, Tina Dare, um, writes about uh, consumerism in this way. She says, classic consumerism suggests. It is to secure the material prosperity that provides satisfaction and protection for us and our families. That's sort of like classic consumerism. But then she talks about an updated version. Sounds more like this. Do what you love. It's more experiential. Either way, either form of consumerism is ultimately about us, about our comfort and wealth or the self-expression and identity found in pursuing our passion. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. How does this affect me? Um, What do I need? What do I want? Okay, and side by side with consumerism is what um, we would look at as individualism. This fierce preoccupation with myself, my personal rights, my personal freedoms, this idea that what I do is my own damn business, okay, I am an autonomous, rational being, That exists apart from any meaningful system of relationships. Okay? Um, Naturalism, a rejection of the supernatural, that the Bible, particularly, those parts that speak about the miraculous simply cannot be true or must be explained by modern science. So we're looking back through the story of God. We're looking at the scriptures. We see things like the flood or we see things like um, Jonah being inside a whale. We go, that has to be explained in some natural way that can't, that couldn't have been a supernatural or miraculous incident. And so we're tweaking and changing God's word um, in a natural way. Um, Humanism, this idea that we not god have the primary responsibility and authority to make the world a better place that it is through our science and technology that we can cure disease eradicate death and bring harmony to the brokenness between people and groups that we can essentially we can do it ourselves we don't need god And then sort of a a blanket one of just reductionism, a a human anthropology that that reduces human downs to be below what God intended them to be. We see this in a modified sexual ethic, in gender complementarity. We see it in a, a reductionistic picture of justice, either one that's overly individualist or overly collectivist. We see it in a modern form of Gnosticism that reduces things down to the spiritual and that we um, don't pay attention to our bodies. We don't speak about the integration of the mind, the body, and the heart as God intended it. Okay, we need to ask Jesus, we need to be reading the scriptures and asking the Lord to reveal um, where we have been assimilated to the culture, where these other stories have captivated our imagination for what is true, right, and good um and we need to walk towards the kingdom in obedience to him. Okay, let's think about let's think about on the flip side the tips of the spear of Christ's kingdom. As we read the scriptures, Um, We become more and more familiar with these. And the beauty of this, as it turns out, is that um, God's kingdom is not a kingdom that storms the capital of culture and tries to take it by force, right? Um, It is one that is subversive, that comes through humility, sacrifice, and even death. Okay, let's look at the tips of the spear of Christ's kingdom. The cultural mandate to subdue and cultivate and multiply the earth where science and technology are beautiful things, but they are means to the end of bringing shalom in both the material and spiritual realms. A kingdom ethic, a commitment to holistic justice, gender and sexuality as defined by God and not by man, a living out of the beatitudes, being poor in spirit, meek, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, People who love our enemies and give up our rights. Supernaturalism. That we believe in the supernatural. That we actually pray with expectancy regularly that Jesus would do miracles in our midst. That we would continue to pray for those who are sick and suffering. That God would make them well. That there are pools of Bethesda, of Bethesda that are still here. Um, we have to ask Jesus that he would perform signs and wonders. Um, and that those things would cause the world to see Jesus and know that he is indeed God. Just as, he did, as they did when he was present with them. That we would live a life of collectivism, of covenant, real covenant to one another. A true sense of solidarity with other people. Where in my relationships and friendships, um, my yes means yes, my no means no. um, Where I'm willing to give up freedoms for the sake of meaning among people. Okay, We have the opportunity to do anything we want. And often we will say, because I have so much freedom, I will sort of decide for myself whether I think it's important to have this relationship or be in this community. I wanna invite us to a renewal of covenant commitment to each other, to say, I'm gonna sacrifice my freedom for the sake of being with the body, the sake of being with others. If all this seems really daunting and impossible, that's because it is. This is so difficult, but here's the good news. Christ's kingdom has already come and is reigning victorious even now. The spear of the kingdom is sharper than that of the world. Jesus already won. That is the basis of our hope. It's what makes being in the world and not of the world possible. Remember that Jesus came as a stranger. No one exiled him. He lived among us as a resident alien of his own accord. No one has ever been less at home than Jesus was during his time on the earth. And yet he lived a perfect life of dual citizenship. He was faithful in the midst of Babylon. He was actually killed because of his primary allegiance to the father, refusing to succumb to any of the temptations to rule the earth of his own power, just as Satan tempted him to do. There was no sharper tip of the spear than the one that pierced his side. Water and blood flowing from his body that would baptize us into salvation, giving us a citizenship we don't deserve. Dear friend, don't forget how much God loves you and the lengths he went to to make you his own, to say, this one belongs to me. They will be a citizen of my kingdom, a son and a daughter of the king. When I read Kazuo Yamane's story this week and looked at the oath of citizenship he made to the U.S., I thought about how much I take for granted as a citizen who was born here in the United States. The Yamane, far more than I probably ever will, knew the cost of their citizenship. Kazuo watched men, his brothers, his friends, die so that he could have it. Jesus' death was the cost of our eternal citizenship. May we not take it for granted. May we remember that we will only be here for a short while. I want to close with this quote from B.T. Arnold, who writes about um, about this idea of, of citizenship in the scriptures. He said, the contrast between the two cities encourages believers of every generation to have the faith of Abraham, who was a resident alien in Canaan, but whose citizenship was in heaven. While living in tents here below, we must live a life worthy of our calling, aware that our time here is brief and that we are on a journey to that eternal city. May we have the faith of Abraham willing to live as strangers in this world, awaiting the arrival of Christ's eternal kingdom, where all things will once again be made new. Friends, there are many great churches in San Francisco with fantastic visions, fantastic names. Um, Our hope is that those God calls to our church family would share our vision for a faithful witness to our city, Um, that we would recognize that without a resilient allegiance to Christ's kingdom we will lose our witness and abandon our sanctification the stakes are high let us live with our primary allegiance to Christ and his kingdom let me pray for us this morning god i thank you for this church and the the privilege i have of being a part um lord i confess that while i um, believe everything that I shared this morning and have written about it and preached about it and talked about it for years now, it is as hard as ever. And God, I just confess that I often give into assimilation. Um, or I just get apathetic and, um, and cynical and just want to withdraw. And so I need your grace, Jesus. I pray that you would continue to reveal To me, um, these stories that have captivated my imagination of consumerism and individualism and naturalism and humanism and all these things, um, you would forgive me, God, and continue to sanctify me in truth, and I pray that for all my brothers and sisters. We love you and thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.